0: Stanford University and the Stanford Graduate School of Business I thought I'd talk a little football while I'm here I'm a big LSU fan and uh, we've only had one loss and y'all only have one loss so I, I think maybe there might be a sugar bowl in, in, the, in the future for the two teams that'd be fun I first met Richard Scruci in the summer of 1980 I was living in Houston Texas and i'd recently passed the cpa exam and i wanted to go to work for a large company a publicly held company i'd always worked for rather small companies and i answered an ad in the paper and it was for a controller position at lifemark corporation lifemark was a publicly held hospital company and i went in for the interview and it was with richard scruschy and I had never met anybody quite like Richard. All during the interview, my head was just spinning. I I just couldn't believe the person that he was. And uh, by the end of the interview, I was totally convinced that that was the best job I could possibly get in Houston, Texas. But as I was driving home, I kept thinking about the interview, and when I got home, I told my wife, I said, I think today I've met the most brilliant businessman I'm ever going to meet. Or maybe the biggest con artist I will ever meet and uh, that's actually been quoted in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and a lot of other publications but he did he offered me the job I reported to work I got to work my first day I was there about 30 minutes early and he came into my office and he said Aaron he said I'm presenting a contract to my boss t- and I'd like for you to sit in on my presentation It's a contract I think we should sign and I went in He introduced me to his boss and he said Aaron and I worked on this contract for hours last night. (laughs) And I hadn't worked on anything, I I barely stepped in the front door. And today I realized that he probably told that lie to size me up, to see how I would react to being included in a lie. At the time I didn't think that much about it, but um, I know a lot more about Richard Scruci now and I'm sure. He, he told that lie on purpose. I worked for Richard for almost four years at, at Life Mart. Uh, we managed departments within hospitals. We would contract with hospitals to run their respiratory therapy, physical therapy, and pharmacies. And Richard was just amazing. He could go into a little hospital in Arkansas or somewhere and, and walk in and walk out with three contracts to run big revenue centers in their hospitals. And we'd take a percent of of the money, and uh, but I also learned that he was had a real dark side. He was so into himself. I remember many times sitting in his office, and he'd be ranting and raving about a problem he was having with his ex-wife or his boss, and it was always about Richard, never about me. He, he just it was always about him. In the summer of 1983, I picked up the Wall Street Journal a morning read and it said um, LifeMark to be acquired by AMI, a much larger hospital company out of California. And the article said they'd be closing the offices of LifeMark. And I thought, Oh, no, man, I'm, I'm going to be without a job. But what happens many times, these are two New York Stock Exchange companies. And a lot of times when they merge, uh, venture capitalists will approach uh, the company is being bought out, and LifeMark was clearly being bought out. And Citicorp Venture Capital contacted uh, Bill Mackey, the chairman of the board, and asked if, if anybody had a, an idea for a startup company that they could back. And Bill Mackey said Richard Scruci, without a doubt. Said we made him a full VP when he was only 26 years old, and he's been talking to us about getting into the outpatient business. Back in the early 80s, if you had an accident or you needed uh, physical therapy after a surgery, the physician would just keep you in the hospital as an inpatient and you would receive your therapy as an inpatient. Even back then, the cost of healthcare was a big concern. Richard's concept was get the patient out of the hospital as fast as you can, uh, certainly eliminate the room and board portion of the hospital bill, and the patient would rather go home and go back as an outpatient rather than staying in a building full of sick people. And he felt like the therapist would rather work in that kind of environment rather than in the hospital itself. In the hospital, the doctors and the nurses are kind of the the big dudes. Uh, The therapy departments are kind of off in the basement somewhere and don't get that much recognition. And Richard felt like if you put them in their own freestanding outpatient center, uh, They'll they'll like working there better. He convinced Citicorp to put a million dollars into his startup company. And he wanted me to be his CFO, to help build a a company that hopefully one day would go public. But I didn't want to. I had about enough of Richard. He's just, he wears on you, you know, and he manages by intimidation. And I I really kind of wanted to get away from him, even at that point. But he, he said, look, Aaron, he said, put in $5,000, you'll get 100,000 shares of stock, nickel a share. He said, I'm putting in 25,000, I'm going to get 500,000 shares. And you've got to realize Citicorp is paying a uh, dollar a share for their million shares. So today your nickel is already worth a dollar. And I didn't have a job. I was going to be laid off. Um, and I believe Richard could do it. I believed I, I was impressed that he got City court to put the million dollars in, and it was almost on the back of an envelope over debtor that he cut the deal, no formal business plan or anything. And I felt like he really could run a, a big company and take it public. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. Richard was from Alabama. He was born and raised in Selma, Alabama. So he wanted to start the company up in Birmingham. And we moved to Birmingham, and we opened our first outpatient center. And it looked more like a fitness center or a spa or something, and that was part of our concept, was to make it non-medical as much as possible so the patient feels like they're, they're going to a spa or something rather than getting medical treatment. We opened our first center, and it started seeing patients right away. We charged less than the acute care hospitals, and we were off and running. And we raised uh, additional venture capital, open more centers. Early on, though, I came in one morning to work. Probably only had maybe 15 people in the corporate office. And Richard had drawn this stick figure image up here. And he he said, look, um, these guys are pulling the wagon. he said, a lot of you aren't really hooked up. Some of you are riding in the wagon. This guy's pulling the wagon backwards. This guy's just kind of fat and dumb and sitting on the sidelines. And he says, I need you to go <laughs> pull the wagon. And he left that drawing up, and it became a, a kind of a company motto to, to pull the wagon. And he had it reproduced, and as the years went by, it was framed, and it was in the lobby of every health South facility uh, next to a picture of, him, of Richard Scrucci. And... Um, At the end of the year, if you were an outstanding employee, you got a a hundred shares of stock and a a little red wagon. It was called the Pulling the Wagon Award. We discovered as we started opening these outpatient centers that there was a need for rehabilitation hospitals, specialty hospitals where um, you don't go for surgery. You don't go there if you're sick. You go there if you're really hurt or you've had a bad stroke and you need. You still need nursing care. So you're, you're inpatient in a, in a hospital, but a, a rehab hospital. We also discovered that outpatient surgery was becoming a big business. Years ago, a physician would not cut on you if you were not in an acute care hospital. But as you're probably aware, uh, things have changed, technology has changed, and a large percentage of all surgeries now are done on an outpatient basis. And we got into that business. So we, we really had three basic businesses rehab outpatient centers, hospitals, and then outpatient surgery. We started the company in 1984, and by 1986, we were talking to investment bankers about going public. And um, I remember very well, we were meeting with the bankers from Drexel Burnham, Uh, you may not know, and the older people in the room know about Drexel Burnham. But um, we were meeting with the banker in, we were discussing our numbers and everything, and he, he said, "Look, you almost must have a lot of startup costs." He said, "How are you handling your startup costs?" And I said, "Well, uh, I'm expensing it. You know, very conservative accounting, just writing it off as we incurred it." And he looked at Richard and I, and he almost had a twinkle in his eye, and he said, "Oh no," he said, "You should be capitalizing those costs." He said, "I think I can get you public uh, just as soon as you show a profit because you have a great concept." But he said, you ought to be capitalizing those expenses and um, get profitable quickly and we'll take you public. And Richard looked at me and he said, Aaron, why are you letting the accounting tail wag the dog? He says, your blankety-blank conservative accounting is holding us back. And he said, you should be doing this. He said, I can't believe you're, you're you're hurting me. I'm trying to get this company public and your conservative accounting is holding us back. Now that's kind of how Richard managed. If he could get you down, he would really beat on you, so to speak. So I restated our numbers, redid our projections, and sure enough, in the second quarter of 1986, we made a profit. And the banker said, let's go. So we went on our roadshow. We went to New York, Boston, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, LA, all of the big uh, institutional buyers in these cities. And we pr- had our road show, and we presented the stock to investors. The last road show is typically in New York City. Uh, the night before you price the stock, and, or the day before at a luncheon, Richard made this just outstanding presentation. And at the end of his presentation, he got a standing ovation. And the guy sitting next to me said, I've never seen anything like this. He said, normally people don't applaud for these types of presentations. And he says, all my years on Wall Street, I've never seen anyone get a standing ovation. And he said, you guys should not be going public. Your company is only two years old. Uh, Your top line audited is only $5 million. Uh, You and Richard have no uh, experience running a public company. Uh, There are no no other companies quite like you out there, so the analysts are going to have trouble uh, writing research on you. But he said, clearly you're going to go public. Uh, Richard is such a salesman that he'll pull it off. Sure enough, we were priced to go out at $8 to $10 a share, and the deal got done at $6.50. We barely made it. It it was almost pulled at the last minute. But um, we got public, began trading, and it was very exciting. I, I was calling my broker every 15 minutes to see how the stock was doing. And within a few months, we were a $10 stock. You can do the arithmetic. I had 100,000 shares. I'm now a millionaire. And the money changed me. As the years went by, um, I bought a condo in the French Quarter. I bought a beach house in Florida. Over the years, I bought $30,000 worth of these Hermes neckties. (laughs) They're really good-looking neckties, you have to admit. But uh, I went kind of crazy on that. And it certainly changed Richard. Richard's ego now was on steroids. He formed a rock and roll band called Proxy, and he began playing at uh, company functions and even at music festivals and nightclubs, and uh, he wanted to become a rock star. And the band didn't do that well, so he formed a country band. And he went to Nashville, and he hired musicians to back him, and he actually wrote a song called Honk, if you like to honky-tonk and um, he sent memos out to all of our employees asking them to uh, call the radio stations and recommend his song be played and he was just unbelievable he also started always carrying a gun in his briefcase and he hired bodyguards that followed him everywhere even if he went to Walmart or whatever he would his bodyguards would be behind him speaking into their sleeves and He almost became kind of a Hannibal Lecter type kind of person. He even looks a little bit like Hannibal Lecter, but um, it was just amazing what what the money did to him. In spite of all this, though, he was the darling of Wall Street. He had started a company that became, started uh, an entire niche in healthcare, and um, everybody wanted him on their board of directors. Venture capitalists brought him other deals to invest in. Um, he, he just absolutely was a, a darling of Wall Street. And he became very wealthy. Um, he controlled the board of directors. So when I got 10,000 options, he got a million, that kind of thing. In 1995, uh, less than 10 years after starting the company, I estimated uh, from his public Leon's stock in HellSouth and other companies, he was worth $600 million. And he told the Birmingham News newspaper that he wanted to be a billionaire. And he was well on his way. And he was really, um, that was his goal to be as rich as he could be, to to be a billionaire. HellSouth did very well. We did lots of public offerings. We, about six companies went public in the same business we were in, and we began buying up our competitors. We did pooling of interest. We would buy their stock with our stock, and um, by 1995, we were the largest company in Alabama, the state of Alabama. We were operating in all 50 states. We had 50,000 employees. We were a Fortune 500 company, and I was a rock star in Birmingham. I could go into any restaurant, and people would point at me, want to talk to me. It was just amazing, and it was it was quite the lifestyle. Um, we started buying jet airplanes. We had two Gulfstream airplanes, which are about thirty million dollar airplanes. Many mornings, Richard and I would go to our hangar, get on our Gulfstream, we would have a stewardess cook us breakfast as we flew into Teterboro Airport, New Jersey. We'd get off the airplane. There'd be a helicopter waiting for us. We'd get on the helicopter, fly into Manhattan. There'd be a limo waiting for us. We'd go to the Plaza Hotel where Charlie Sheen hangs out and uh, make presentations to investors and fly back home that night, never going through Atlanta or anything. It was was really quite the lifestyle. Richard's obsession with being wealthy was unbelievable. He was the one that really talked to the analysts and the investment bankers about what kind of earnings we could achieve. And he understood that his wealth was tied to Wall Street. And he would ask the analysts, what do we need to do for y'all to keep a strong buy on the stock? And they would tell it, no, you need to grow 30, 40 percent. And he said, we can do that. Everything was okay for the first seven, eight, nine years. We would hit those, what he he promised the street. But it got difficult. We we were a big company now. There weren't as many growth opportunities, and just compound growth of 20, 30% is difficult to achieve year after year after year. So we started doing some not so good accounting. In healthcare, the biggest issue, the, the trick, is revenue recognition, which it is in many businesses. You have contracts with HMOs, Medicare, Um, private companies, you have a lot of bad debt. So what you charge the patient and what you eventually collect are very different. So you have to make adjustments to that revenue to come up with a net receivable number that's a good number. As it became difficult to make our numbers, maybe we missed street estimates by a penny, we would say, well, maybe bad debts aren't 10% of revenue, they're going to be 8%, and we would change that our basis for the accounting for bad debts. Not fraud, but certainly not good accounting. For those of you who are accounting majors, you understand, uh, you don't change your underlying accounting principles to achieve a number. You you change those principles uh, when it really dictates the circumstances to say you should. But we did it to make our numbers. Everything was fine until 1996. Uh, 10 years of being a public company, and we'd completed our second quarter, and we'd missed our numbers really badly, and the street was picking up that um, our days in AR were growing, our cash flow didn't seem to be what it should be, and Bill Owens, who was my chief accountant, and I just felt like we could not play with the reserves anymore. It would just be too transparent, and it was time to report a bad quarter. We went into Richard's office and we showed him the numbers and we told him. And he said, no. Have you guys lost your minds? He said, we can't do that. He said, the analysts are going to put sales on the stock. It's going to crash. We're going to be sued by stockholders. Your stock options are going to be worthless. You're not going to be the rock stars in Birmingham anymore. He said, "We we can't do that. And he said, you know, look. And he, he's cult-like. He put on his salesman hat and he said, now look, healthcare is the biggest business in the United States. We're a small part of it. He said, we can get into the acute care hospital business and become, if not the largest, one of the largest companies in, in the country. But he said, I can't do it if y'all screw this up by reporting these bad numbers. And he said, y'all done things to the numbers before, you know, capitalizing calls, changing estimates. He said there's got to be something you can do to get us past this little bump in the road and uh, Bill Owens who had my chief accountant who had worked for our auditors um, said Richard um, he said look we have 1,500 general ledgers he said I can make entries small enough that the auditors won't look at them and he was very clear he said I will be crediting revenue that doesn't exist And debiting assets that don't exist. I was intimidated by Richard. I'm ashamed to admit it but I did not have the courage to stand up to him at that point. I knew he had a gun in his briefcase. I had seen him get so angry about small things that I could not think of causing his net worth to go down by several hundred million dollars. And I believed in the company. We were a good company and I wanted I wanted the, the the party to keep going on. I, I'll be honest with you. I I did not want to report bad numbers either. So that night, Bill Owens cooked the books. I told my wife about it when I went home, and she told me how stupid I was. And uh, that night, of course, I couldn't sleep. I, I woke up the next day, and I felt like I had to put a genie back in a bottle, and and of course I couldn't. And and that point in my, my life changed, I was now living a lie. We had cooked the books. The next quarter rolls around, and we do it again. Not quite as difficult the second time. 1996 ends. I lie to the auditors when they ask their standard questions about have any entries been made or not made that should have been made, and sure enough, we got it by the auditors, and it wasn't discovered. 1997 begins, and we plead with Richard to lower street expectations, and he had no part of it. He knew that once you're a high P.E., high growth company, once you tell the street you're not going to keep growing, they'll they'll put sales or at least holes on the stock rather than strong buys. So we began 1997, and it was apparent to me that we were going to have another year of cooking the books. Because we were in a hole, we had to get out of the hole and then grow unrealistically. During this period of time, I, I think it was early 1997, Richard told Bill Owens and I, he said, if we're ever caught, I will deny everything. You guys do what you want, but I'm telling you, I'm going to deny everything. Well, my life is an utter mess. I'm beginning to drink more than I should. Uh, I hate my job. I hate going to work every day. And I felt trapped. I, and I, I didn't want to be a whistleblower. With Richard making that statement, I knew he would bring more lawyers, guns and money to the party than I would. I didn't want to stay because it was not fun anymore. It, it, it was a lie. So I went to Richard and I, I told him I wanted to retire. I was only 54 years old and uh he said, Yeah, if that's what you want to do. He said, um, he said, I think you're making a mistake, but if that's what you want to do. And we never talked about the fraud. I mean, Richard's very smart. You don't have to spell things out to him. So I left the company in 1997. And I moved to South Alabama, close to the uh, coast. And I bought, uh, as soon as I was not an insider anymore, I sold all of my stock. And I bought 15, 25 acres of land and I built a very nice house, and for some reason, I built a football field in my backyard, <laughs> and um, to this date, I don't know of anyone else that built a. I I mean it had goalposts and everything, <laughs> and um, so, uh, and I just distanced myself from the company, I just put it out of my mind, and, and uh, but one day, about a year after I retired, Richard called me, he said, come, come to Birmingham, have lunch with me, so I went to Birmingham, and the Went into the dining room and the corporate offices, and he said, look, Aaron, I need you to come back to work. He said, we're making our numbers fine now. He said, everything's okay. You need, you need to come back and help me grow the company. And I told him no. I, I really did not want to get back into the frying pan, and I was having a lot of fun with my dogs on my football field. So I went back, and um, 1998 passes. 1999, 2000. 2001, 2002, but in the spring of 2003, I'm watching the evening news and they open up with, we have a breaking story out of Birmingham, Alabama, massive accounting fraud uncovered at a health cell. Billions of bogus entries have been made to the books. And I was like, God. When I first retired, every time my doorbell rang or my phone rang, I thought it was the FBI. I thought it was, you know, but it had been six years, and I wanted to believe the fraud had stopped. So, I'm sure I wasn't as surprised as the average guy on the street, but I was amazed that the fraud had gone on all those years. Alice Martin, who was the attorney with the federal government out of the northern district of Alabama, the newspaper the next day, said uh, several people have come forward, admitted their involvement in the fraud, But there are others that are involved. And if you're one of those people, you need to come forward. And I almost thought she was going to name me by name in the paper. But uh, my wife tried to console me and say, look, you've been gone a long time. Fraud wasn't that big when you were there. They're they're not going to come after you. And I said, no, I don't think so. And so I contacted an attorney, a white collar criminal attorney, And he knew Alice Martin's people. He made some phone calls, and he called me back, and he said, oh, yeah, Mr. Beam, you need to come talk to me. So my wife and I went in, and first thing he said, he says, do not lie to me, and do not lie to the federal government. He says, your former employees have told them you were involved. The FBI is all over that building. And if you lie, they're going to come down on you like a freight train. You need to tell the truth. By now, my wife is in tears, I'm almost in tears, and I have a kind of funny sense of humor. I, I asked him if he needed a check or something, and he said, yes, I'd like for you to write me a check for $100,000, <laughs> and I went, like, whoa, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, Mr. Redeem, I'm not kidding. He said, that won't be the last check you're going to have to write, and um, I asked him if I could get a T-shirt or something, <laughs> and uh, he gave me a coffee mug, <laughs> and, uh, My wife and I have referred to it as a $100,000 coffee mug. Three days later, I'm in a federal building in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm sitting across the table from two FBI agents, two agents from the SEC, several attorneys from Alice Martin's office, and I am a scared puppy. It is not fun to be interrogated by the FBI and the SEC. And I felt like I, I didn't do a good job because they wanted to know, well, in 1996, when you first cooked the books, what did you say to Richard? What did he say to you? And they're recording all this. And I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember details. But at the end of the day, it lasted all day. Uh, the FBI agent said, Mr. Bean, he said, uh, we know a lot about this case. And from what we know, we believe you were very truthful today. And he says, we, we appreciate that. Alice Martin's people said 17 people have come forward and admitted their involvement in the fraud. Only one key person denies it. Richard Scrooge. He says he knows nothing about it. And we're going to have to take Mr. Scrooge to trial and we'll like for you to be a witness. And they explained that they weren't cutting me a deal. That it wasn't like rat Richard out and you don't go to prison. All we can tell you that if you cooperate uh, when we recommend a sentencing to a federal judge will ask him to take that into consideration. This is the spring of 02. The trial didn't begin until 05 in January. So I had a two-year period where my life was literally very, very miserable. I knew I could possibly go to prison for north of 20 years, basically the rest of my life. And my attorney explained to me that they're going to look at your personal balance sheet, and because of the magnitude of the fraud, they can find you whatever they want to find you. And um, they're not going to put you in a box underneath a freeway, but you're not going to have a football field and a million-dollar home and a home in Florida. and All that you're going to have to sell that to pay to pay the government. So it, it, like I say, it was a very, very dark period of time. During this period of time, Richard Scroogey went on the offensive. He left the church that he belonged to, and he joined an inner city church, and he gave that church a million dollars. He also bought a television station in Birmingham, and he and his wife, every morning, uh, Monday through Friday, preached the gospel on TV. He was a a preacher. Uh, He spent $20 million on his lawyers. He hired a jury selection firm. He had a publicist. And all during the trial, he, every day, he, was, he was, always had a Bible in his hand, he and his wife. And he was surrounded by ministers. And I thought it was laughable. I, I just didn't think it was so obvious what he was trying to do. I just didn't think it would work. The government wanted me to be the first witness. There were four CFOs after I left, all promoted up in the company. And uh, they wanted me to be the first witness because they thought I was very professor-like. I guess it's the beard. I don't know. <laughs> and that I could explain to the jury what street estimates were, what are earnings per share, what are, what's a balance sheet, what's an income statement. And sure enough, they put me on the stand, and they have charts, and it goes on almost all day, and the jury is falling asleep. I'm trying to make eye contact and they, they don't get it. They're bored. They don't understand it. They literally were falling asleep. I could have been teaching rocket science or brain surgery. They would have picked up on it just as well as what I was doing. Now this is big time courtroom drama. This was the first Zorbanes-Oxley case tried in the United States and it was a big deal. And you don't want to be involved in something like this if, if you don't have to. Very first thing the lawyer gets in my face and he says, Mr. Bean, you've had an extramarital affair, haven't you? And I say, yes, because I had. The next day the Birmingham News, the newspaper said what a clever attorney he was to get me to admit to this. And um, the next day my wife wanted to come to the courtroom holding a sign saying she still loved me And uh, we've been married 40 years now, and I have since discovered that he's on his fourth wife, and the fourth wife is very much a trophy bride. I I digress. (laughs) He then gets to my face and he says, Mr. Beam, when you went to New York City and presented to investors, you lied, didn't you? When you presented the numbers to the board of directors, you lied. Mr. Bean, you lie so much you don't know when you're telling the truth. You are a cheat and a liar. The juror's eyes were this big. They were awake. They were having fun. (laughs) This was entertainment. Tell this lawyer, scream at me and call me a liar. The trial went on for six months. The jury deliberated for about six weeks. Not guilty. All charged. The legal community throughout the United States could not believe it. Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, Martha Stewart, they all went to prison, but not Richard Scrushy. Within a couple of weeks, he flew to Houston, Texas, to coach Ken Lay on how to conduct his trial at Enron. <laughs> it was unbelievable. They asked the jury, uh, some of the ones that were willing to talk, they asked them, how did you find Mr. Scrushy not guilty? when 17 people, five CFOs, all said he was at the center of the fraud. And some of them said, well, it seemed like those CFOs were liars, and Mr. Scroogey seemed like a nice Christian man. I cried like a baby when when the verdict went down. I just could not believe that he had pulled it off. Three months later, I was sentenced to federal prison. And I, I got only three months, and I'm... I don't understand why I got such a light sentence, but I'm Cuban, and I do not volunteer to do more time, so. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all been to prison, but if you've got to go to prison, you want to go to a federal minimum security prison. It's not that bad. Uh, my wife drove me there. I've reported. Uh, it was on an Air Force base, and you're not locked up, per se. And they actually tell you if you want to leave, you can. But they say when the marshals, U.S. Marshals, you you're going to big boy prison and I didn't want to go to big boy prison so um, interesting place prisons like this were initially set up I think for white collar criminals and there were a lot of lawyers and accountants there was um, two beds down from me where we slept there was a thoracic surgeon that had cheated the Medicare program the most interesting guy I met while I was there was the father of the young man that just married Chelsea Clinton. He was a politician. He was in for seven years for, I think, embezzling campaign funds or something. Uh, nice guy, Very interesting. <laughs> About half of the prison, though, was drug dealers. If you're a nonviolent drug dealer and you get less than ten years, you can go to this kind of prison. So it was kind of 50-50 white collar and drug dealer. I was there during football season. And I'm a big LSU fan, and uh, did I tell you I think we're going to play in a bowl game? Okay. Uh, One night, LSU was playing, and it was on TV, and there's a television set in the lobby where you're housed, and up until 10 o'clock at night, you can watch television. So I went in to watch the game, and there were a bunch of drug dealers, and they were watching the Miami Hurricanes play. And they called me Pops. They said, no, Pops, you're not watching your Tigers. We're going to watch our Canes play. And I was depressed. I went around to every barracks trying to find a TV, which you're not supposed to do, and to watch the game. And all the drug dealers had them tied up. The season ends. LSU gets an invitation to go to the Peach Bowl in Atlanta, Georgia to play the Miami Hurricanes. So I, I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to get to see this game. So the night before the game, three of these guys came to me, and they're, they're biggest football players because they're, they're in and out of prison, they lift weights, and they're huge. And uh, they asked me for my shoelaces. I said, why? They said, so you won't hang yourself uh, when Miami kicks LSU's ass tomorrow. <laughs> so the game begins. It's me and 30 drug dealers from Miami. <laughs> and LSU wins 40 to 3. And it was absolutely the most fun uh, I you could possibly have while you're in prison. Yeah. And, uh, the worst thing about it, there was nobody there with violence in their background. So the first night I took a shower, I looked over my shoulder, and nothing happened. And, but the worst part was the food. Uh, I happened to read the book Fast Food Nation while I was in there, and they, they talked about how the very worst grade of all food goes to prisons. And uh, after being there about a week, I got the right to call my wife. And I called her and I told her, I was telling her on and on how bad the food was. And she said, Aaron, you're in prison. So I didn't complain about (laughs) food anymore. I got out in February and I'm now a felon. Do you know what the job market is like for felons? Okay, it's not good. You can imagine in today's job market if there's a a good job opening, there's got to be 30, 40, 50 people that qualify for it applying. What chance does a felon have? So I needed a job. My fines and my legal bills were well in excess of a million dollars and I had to auction off my property and um, I, I needed a job. My wife had gone back to work. I had always liked gardening and working outdoors and I went back to school and I got a two-year certificate in turf management. And for the past few years, I've been making a living mowing lawns. Uh, It's not that bad, except the heat in South Alabama during the summer is just terrible. And uh, but when I was at LifeMark, or not LifeMark, Hell South. My salary was $500,000. I really didn't feel like I was earning that money. There were 50,000 employees out there making that money for me. But today, when I mow lawns, uh, cut somebody's grass, and I get maybe 40 or $50 in the South Alabama heat, I feel like I've really earned that money. And it's, uh, I do sleep better now than I ever did when I was at HealthSouth. My wife is so smart, she said, Aaron, why don't you call the dean of the business school? Over the years, I'd given them a lot of money, and see if you could talk to the MBA students about what has happened to you. And uh, I, I, I do like talking. So I, I, I called the dean, and the dean said, oh, Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. So I went, talked to the MBA students. Uh, they had a special session for me, and it went very well. I really felt like I'd done something right. And, and uh, but I didn't think about doing speaking as, a, uh, as a, a living, doing it for a living. Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, HealthSouth, it all faded into the woodwork. They weren't front-page news anymore. But something happened. Y'all, y'all may have heard about it. the subprime debacle. We learned that millions of loans were made to people. Mortgage companies coach people how to lie on their loan applications to get be able to buy a home they really couldn't afford. Wall Street took those loans, packaged them, told got them rated very highly, uh, Standard & Poor's and Moody's, and they told the investing public these were good securities. On the other side of the house, their hedge funds were shorting these securities. (coughs) The real estate bubble burst, and all of a sudden, I mean, it's almost overnight. You've lived it. The largest insurance companies, the largest banks, the largest investment banking firms are all broke, and they're asking for a bailout. And we're in the Great Recession. Why? At the heart of it is greed and unethical business behavior. Hell South was bad, but this was massive. So massive that it put the whole world into a recession the Great Recession. When Webster's first published his dictionary, he defined success as being generous, prosperous, healthy, and kind. Today, that definition is the attainment of wealth, fame, and rank. Having a bigger house and more cars than your neighbor when you're up to here in debt is not being successful, particularly if you accumulate that wealth doing unethical business things. So I, I have been speaking to colleges and companies and, and uh, associations, fraud associations and accounting groups about ethics and you might say, and I'm sure you ha- have said this, you can't teach ethics. You're either ethical or you're not. I don't believe it's that black or white. I believe it's like the pilot that landed that plane on the Hudson River. He studied every crash, every water landing, and he knew in those critical moments exactly what to do and how to bring that plane in and save those people's lives. I think today if we teach ethics at high schools, colleges, on the job, you'll be better prepared to deal with the kind of things I had to deal with. And trust me, you will, when you get out into the business world, you will face Things like I face. Maybe not as big, but you will be asked to keep sales open a little longer after the month end. Maybe uh, cut payables off a little early to help the bottom line. I think the image of the accountant with the green visor in the back room is is for a large part true. Uh, the, The hard charging people are in sales, they're in marketing, they're out front, they like confrontation. Accountants like to kind of be in the background and please people by keeping a nice set of books. And that, that, that hurts you. The largest turnover of executives in the United States is CFOs. CFO of public companies only lasts three and a half years. And part of it is because they're constantly asked to make the numbers what they need to be. And, and it's really, really a big problem. And you need to be aware of that. You need, when you go to work for a company and you figure out you've got a sociopath at the top like Richard Scrusci, and the tone at the top is all wrong, you need to leave that company and go to another company. I'll come back to that. There. There's a professor at Arizona State University, uh, Dr. Mary Ann Jennings, and she's probably one of the outstanding ethics professors in the United States. And, She has written a book called The Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse. And the book is about Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, and HealthSouth. And she talks about the seven things to look for in a company before it has a complete ethical meltdown. The first sign is the pressure to maintain the numbers. Make the numbers. And at HealthSouth, that was our our whole focus. Make the numbers. No matter what, make the numbers. But if the, if the culture is such that it's make the numbers with no regard for doing it ethically, doing it correctly, that's the first sign. The second sign is fear and silence. Richard managed by intimidation. Uh, and most people don't want to tell on their boss. They're, they're afraid they'll lose their job. So there's a, a, a culture of fear and silence in these companies. You might think my whole speech today is the bashing of Richard Scrushy, but you've got to realize that when you have an Enron or a WorldCom or a HealthSouth, the guy at the top, the CEO, is probably a bigger-than-life personality who hires young people or people that he can control and manage and intimidate and, and get them to, to do what he wants. The fourth sign is a weak board of directors, and this is probably the, the most important, certainly back in the HealthSouth era. Dr. Jennings said that Health South had the weakest board of directors she had ever seen. Well, it just absolutely, any time Richard put somebody on the board and they gave him any trouble, he just got rid of them. So over the years, he just developed a board of yes men. Uh, the board at uh, WorldCom was referred to as Bernie's boys. Bernie Evers was chairman of the board and it was his boys. Conflicts. Richard made sure we all had stock options. We were given loans to exercise our stock options. We did business with our board member. We bought $8 million worth of glass from a guy that to go into our hospitals. He was on the board. So Richard uh, set us up to be conflicted so we, we'd stay true to the cause. Innovation like no other. I. Challenge anybody in this room to explain to us what Enron really did. Nobody understood Enron's business. So they had this unique business. The unique thing, the like no other thing at Hell was our earnings. For ten years, we went perfectly straight up, no no, no bumps at all. Um, people sometimes look look hard at companies when they're doing badly, but all of these companies, Enron, Hell they were. High-flying companies apparently doing very well, but uh, too well. Uh, the last sign is goodness uh, in some areas uh, atones for evil in other areas. <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting uh, sign, but it, it's there in many cases. Hell South gave lots of money to churches and schools and everything. There were... Many, many things throughout the state of Alabama with Richard Scruci's name on it. It was Hell South money, but he, he made sure he gave uh, money to, to these causes, and he was recognized as this very generous person. Uh, one last Richard Scruci story because it's the best one. Uh, Richard has had three wives and nine children, and his third wife uh, was a graduate of Troy University in South Alabama. And uh, they wanted to get into Division I football. And they needed to sell X number of season tickets and they needed to enlarge their stadium. So HellSelf bought the tickets and gave them the money to enlarge the stadium. And sure enough, it became the Richard M. Scruci, uh, uh Stadium. But he also required that the band play his song, Honk If You Like to Honky Tonk at Halftime. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I have written a book called Hell South The Wagon to Disaster and you might say well look at Aaron Beam he's up here preaching to us about ethics and he's trying to get rich off of a book he wrote I don't know how many of y'all have written a book You, you may have doctor but the chances of you writing a book and you becoming wealthy from it is about as likely as you being struck by lightning while you're on your honeymoon with Cindy Crawford (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. Um, my speech is a condensed version of the book, and, that, and that's the reason I wrote the book. I hope universities will have students read it so that they can understand how this all evolved, how I got on the slippery slope, and how I made the terrible decisions that I did. Today, I am a felon. That's all I'm ever going to be remember- remembered as. I'm not going to be remembered as a guy that started one of the largest healthcare companies and one of the largest companies in Alabama, I'm going to be known as the guy that cooked the books at HealthSouth. You do not want to go there. All that unethical behavior is very corrosive. It's, It's like metal rusting. One day it rusts more and more and more and a bridge falls down and people die. If you let yourself compromise your ethical principles, it will lead to a very bad ending. And that's that's the message I want to bring today. At this point I'd like to throw it open to questions. Anybody have any questions? Yes, sir. What's your relationship like with today? <laughs> He's in prison. Um, believe it or not, this is his mug shot when he went to prison. Um, after the government lost the case of Hell South, he was indicted for bribing the governor of Alabama. Uh, the governor was running for re-election while he was at Health South and he gave the governor, or Health South gave the governor, $500,000 for his campaign funds. And um, the federal government, Richard got appointed to a board, a CON, Certificate of Need Board, a public uh, state position. And uh, the federal government said this was a bribe. The legal community said, this is silly. The people give politicians money all the time. And it's seldom ever considered a bribe. It's, it's just not. Well, Richard fired up his TV show, he got the Bibles back out, got the ministers in the courtroom, and he was found guilty. And he's in a, a prison in Beaumont, Texas now, and he's been there for three years, and uh, he's doing seven years. I think he get one year knocked off, but uh, they've asked him, what, what is he going to do when he gets out? And he said he's going to continue preaching. And he's going to write and sing Christian music. So you'll get in line for that album when it comes out. <laughs> I haven't no I've had no contact with him. Don't want to. I hope he lives by the rules you, you you can't own a gun when you're a felon, so yeah. I was just curious, I think you alluded to twenty like seven of those uh, seven. Right. Well, we were in a bubble, a a, a stock market bubble, uh, in particularly healthcare stocks. And uh, part of it was just like the home, the mortgage thing is, you rationalize that it's okay, you know, because. No, and it really didn't, maybe toward the end, it got down to patient care level, but it was pretty much in the boardroom. And the day we did it, we cooked the books you don't think about the consequences you don't look ahead and think oh my god this is going to turn out very terribly you rationalize it you you believe you're doing the best choice you're picking the best option by doing what you do Mm -hmm. white-collar criminals are like that I I met an FBI agent at a conference the other day and it's very clear the the typical criminal that holds up a bank with a gun the money's in the bank, and he wants it. <laughs> okay, the white collar criminal, though, many times rationalizes and, and convinces himself that what you're doing is not really bad. You know, and if you can pull it off, what the heck? How do you put books in such a huge company? I mean, there were so many people who had control over the accounts, controllers, and so on. People who controlled it. All all of our accounting was centralized, so People sent all their financial information, payrolls, and everything was done centrally. So Bill Owens was a very smart guy, and he was able to do it. Um, How he pulled it off for all those years, I don't know. Uh, The forensic accounting bill to clean up the books was $643 million. So there were literally hundreds of thousands of bogus entries made. How the auditors did not catch it, um, I don't know. I wasn't surprised that they didn't catch it the first year I was there, but how it went on. The last audited balance sheet had three hundred million in cash that didn't exist. So they they weren't real good auditors. <laughs> yes. You really should if you if, certainly if you know it's fraudulent you, you know it's fraud you should you should report it, and you could be rewarded handsomely the new uh, dodd bill uh, I think you get thirty percent of uh, the the fine that ultimately goes down, so <laughs> there's a lot of controversy around that whether or not that's a good piece of legislation or not, but you certainly should you should tell but it takes a lot of courage. It, it's uh, the easy thing to do is just walk away, you know. But uh, if you know for sure that there's out, and there's hotlines and ways you can do it and and not be known. Well, the 2010 Aaron Me was a lot smarter than he was back then. I would have I would have said no, Richard. We can't do this. This is this is pushing the envelope too far. This is fraud. This is wrong. And he would have fired me, I would have lost my job, but uh, I should have done that. And I, I would do it today. I, I, I'm a, You get religion when you go to prison, I guess. Would you out the, deal with you? Um, the trick with a person like Richard is that um, the personality type of a CEO, a real hard charging CEO is, has a lot of the traits that Richard has. You just need to size them up and make sure they're not a sociopath because it, clearly if Richard can sue me for anything it's probably be me calling him sociopath, but he is he has no conscience. and you have to you have to figure that out you know but uh, you look at the people look at Donald Trump I mean he loves himself he loves being on reality TV but everybody wants to go to work for the Donald you know I'm not saying Donald Trump is a Richard squishy but it, that person Richard had the Donald Trump type personality of loving himself. Um, Bill Owens got five years, uh, Weston Smith, who actually wrote chapter 10 in my book, he got two years. Uh, Mike Martin, the CFO that replaced me got three years, but really kind of light sentences, you know, it if you plead, if you come forward and plead, and the government doesn't have to take you to court, you do get a, a lot better deal. Uh, all of those guys, myself, if I had tried to lie through it and they had found me guilty, uh, I probably would have gone to prison for many, many, many years. You need to leave, maybe? Uh-huh. You know, you can stick yeah, I'll stick around. Yeah. And uh, Thank OK. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.